The scripture reading is Mark 8:31 through 9:13. If you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, this is on page 844. Let us hear God's word for us this morning. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how... And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chris. Um, I mentioned in the first service that this is just another kind of normal, everyday passage for us. Um, and I thought about how, uh, I think Darwin has said that the past two or three weeks, um, as we're looking at these significant events in the Gospels, and that is a pretty common pattern. We have these things, we kind of, we stop and uh, pause and go, that's really weird, um, and we don't really know what this transfiguration thing is all about. So, that's what we're going to look at this morning, and um, I'll try and help us figure it out a little bit, I hope. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we will take a closer look at God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace to us. Thank you for your Word. 
And we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we pray that we would come to uh, behold Jesus in all his glory this morning as we look at this passage about his glory. And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, Some of you probably watched the Grammys a few weeks ago. Maybe? A few folks? Uh, Maybe not many. Um, But uh, if you did, you saw that uh, Beck won the award for Best Album of the Year. And as he was up receiving his award, Kanye West comes out of the front row and starts coming up as if he's going to come up and get in the way on the mic. Now, if you remember, he was doing that kind of making fun of himself because in 2009... At the MTV Video Music Awards, uh, Taylor Swift had won the award for Best uh, Song, Best Music Video, or something like that. And Kanye didn't think she deserved it. And so what he did is he got up and took the mic from her to tell the audience during during Taylor's acceptance speech, Taylor, like my buddy Taylor, Taylor Swift's acceptance speech, that Beyonce should have won it. And, uh, and so if you do a little bit of, uh, if you've heard much about Kanye West, you know that he is ridiculously talented. Like he's, he's one of the best in the business for sure. Um, but he is also not at all ashamed of getting into the limelight whenever he possibly can. And he recognizes himself to be one of the best in the business. And so he says things like this, my greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. That's hard. If you're the best, that's hard. If I was just a fan of music, I would think that I was the number one artist in the world. I am Warhol. I am the number one most impactful artist of our generation. I am Shakespeare in the flesh. And then when asked, who is your favorite rapper? Good question. You're kind of interested in uh, who your musicians like to listen to. His answer, I am. I'm my favorite rapper. So what what is Kanye after above all else? What Kanye wants is glory, fame, and recognition. He wants to be the best, and he wants everybody to know that he's the best. So what does he want in a word? Kanye wants glory. And as usual, I put these kind of obnoxious quotes up front that make us look at him from a distance and think, that's ridiculous, Uh, when in fact we've got the same thing going on inside each of our own hearts. Nobody's given quotes like that uh, in this room, I don't think, about themselves. But given the opportunity, given the opportunity to be honest about what we really desire, we would love that kind of glory and fame and honor. And that is what Kanye is after. And that's what we've got in common with him. We all want glory. What is glory? What is this desire for glory? Well, C.S. Lewis wrote this well-known essay and preached actually a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Um, It's regularly quoted after Kanye West. No, it's not. Uh, Here's what he says about what glory is. Listen to this. It's a little wordy, but he really gets at something profound here. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deepest desire. 
For glory means good rapport with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. That is what glory is. It is that sense that each of us has, whether you are here this morning as a Christian or whether this is the first time you've stepped foot in a church, you have that desire, that longing deep down within you, the cry of your soul that longs for something more than what life gives you right now. The deep desire for a world and a life that is not full of frustration and sin and death and evil. We long and ache for that world where our relationship with our maker is what it should be, where we are acknowledged by him, where our relationships with one another are what they should be, where they're not falling apart and breaking down all the time and making things so very difficult for us. But what I want you to hear is that we actually long for this glory because we were created for it. This is an echo of Eden. You are created for glory, and the fact that you don't experience it like you should, is a product of the fall. And so what is the natural human condition after Genesis 3 is an attempt by all humans to fill up that lack of glory, to fill the void in some way, and we look all over the place to do it. Some of us, like Kanye, look for glory in recognition and fame. We look for it in success at work. We look for it in our reputation of what other people think about us. We just think if people would notice me and praise me and recognize the good work that I'm doing, then that void within me would be filled. If I get the kind of recognition I want on Facebook, if I get all the retweets that I want, if people see me for who I really am, then I would be okay. And we, we look forward in success and in fame. But we also look forward in, in experience. We long to kind of have, some, some people have said that, that uh, experience of the transcendent. Where we want some kind of experience of pleasure that fills that void. It might be a vacation. If I could just get to Europe and do that trip that I want, then I'm finally going to be satisfied. And actually, what I would suggest to you is that every time you get on your computer and go to the websites that on the one hand you hate and know you shouldn't be at, and on the other hand, love, you are actually looking for glory. When you go to the refrigerator, to the pantry again, in the midst of your sorrow, you are actually looking for glory. And at times, that desire for glory becomes so overwhelming that all we want to do is numb that pain and do anything and everything we can to forget the void that is within us and so we numb out in various ways. Let Netflix show that next episode. Yes, I do want to automatically watch the next episode of this and the one after and the one after. Yes, I do want to fill my schedule and be completely busy so that I don't have to think about this void that is within me. We all long for glory. And the question is, where is that glory found? Where is it to be found? What this passage has for us is a preview of future glory. And it's not the kind of preview that you want to ignore. This is a preview that shows us what is the true and lasting source of glory, the only lasting source of glory. And what that source is, is Jesus himself. Where 
can that longing for glory be satisfied? It can be satisfied in one place, in Jesus alone. And that's what this passage says to us. Jesus alone satisfies our glory. And that's the angle I want to take on this passage this morning. We'll ask this question, how does Jesus do that? How does He satisfy our longing for glory? There's three points. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down now. Jesus satisfies our longing for glory by revealing God's glory. Secondly, by redefining our misconceptions of glory. And thirdly, by re-gifting God's glory to us. Revealing God's glory, redefining our misconceptions of glory, and then re-gifting His glory to us. So first, Jesus satisfies our longing for glory by revealing God's glory. Again, this passage uh, has some very unfamiliar, odd things happening. Um, What we need to see, though, is this passage from the perspective of the disciples. And these disciples would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. And this passage is dripping with Old Testament references. We're not going to get into all of them because we could spend a whole lot of time on them. But it is important that we understand some of the background in order to understand why this is such a huge deal for these disciples. And so if, we get, if you get bogged down in the midst of this, just keep thinking, this is all about God's glory being revealed, okay? So, a few points as to how God's glory is revealed in this passage. One, it's revealed in the similarity to Sinai. I'm going to read this passage from Exodus 24. Again, disciples would have been familiar with this. You might be familiar with this as well. Listen to Moses going up on the mountain at Sinai and how similar it is to this account in Mark. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. About six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Pretty similar, right? We're supposed to recognize that. This is Jesus now leading, as Moses led the old exodus, Jesus is now leading a new exodus. He's not leading his people out of slavery in Egypt, but he's leading them out of a different kind of slavery, and it's out of the slavery of sin. Jesus is the new Moses. We're supposed to see that as this account begins. His glory is then also revealed in this thing that we call the transfiguration. Look at verse 2, the end of it. It says, and he was transfigured. That could also be uh, translated transformed. He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so that no, as no one on earth could bleach them. So the disciples are standing there. They go up on the mountain. They're excited because they're kind of in this inner ring of the three that are going to get to see this thing. And then something incredible happens where light begins emanating from Jesus. And again, he wants to make clear this is nothing that a person could do with a lot of Clorox. This is something that God alone can do. And if you are the disciples, you're thinking, I remember hearing about Moses coming down from the mountain in Exodus 34. Where his face was radiant and shining because he had met with God. Well now, this this light is coming from Jesus himself. This is as though Jesus is kind of going from Clark Kent to Superman. Where it's as though he's pulling open his shirt. And you start going, he's lifting this veil and you go, oh goodness, this is no ordinary person. This is no ordinary man. 
This is glory and light radiantly coming from him. And that's what happens in the Old Testament when God shows up. This is the glory of God shining forth. And then Moses and Elijah are present. Again, a lot we could say here, but here's the, here's the big point about these two. These two were going to be present when God's work of redemption and the restoration of all things was going to happen. There were huge hopes as to when Moses and Elijah show up again. And so there's this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses speaks of this great prophet that's going to come someday, greater than he. And then Elijah uh, is is said, is spoken of in uh, Malachi 4 this, that I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. The restoration of all things is happening. This is what the disciples are, are seeing. Finally, God's glory is revealed in this voice. It comes out of the glory cloud and says, This, this one is my beloved son. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah are gone. What's happening? What's happening is that Jesus, for a moment here, is lifting the veil to show forth his true glory, showing forth who he really is. And he's being put forward here as the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. Everything that God was pointing towards in in his interaction with Moses and the people of Israel, everything he was pointing towards with Elijah is coming to fruition now. And Jesus is the one. And this glory is shining forth. And here's the point for us. Jesus is the place where God's glory is found. He is the place and the only place where true glory is found. And what that means then is that any attempt to find glory anywhere else is going to ultimately be fruitless. It's going to be unsatisfying. It's going to be futile because there's one place to go to find ultimate glory and it's in Jesus himself. And yet, of course, we do this all the time. And so I want you to consider this question as we're working our way through this passage this morning. It's this. Where do you look for glory? What are your particular temptations, the particular places that you're prone to go when you sense that void and that need to be filled? Maybe it is success at work. Maybe it's good grades at school. Maybe it's your reputation at school so that you can sit at that table that you want to, and if you could just get there, the void would be filled. Maybe it's that you are the moral upstanding person who constantly looks pristine. Everything happens the way it should. Your kids behave the way they should. You are the parent that other people envy. Where do you look for glory? What this passage says is that whatever it is, however you answer that question, you will come up fruitless in the end. It's a futile attempt to find glory outside of Jesus. It's a never-ending pursuit, and it's a never-satisfying pursuit. Here's what Madonna said about something very similar to this, this never-ending pursuit of glory. And again, this is a person who has extreme success, extreme fame, extreme recognition, what so many of us long for. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. 
My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Again, whether you are a Christian or not, you know what that is. Trying to fill that void is like trying to fill a black hole. It's like getting on a hamster wheel and expecting to go places. It's fruitless. It's unsatisfying and it won't work. And the call of this passage is to turn from those ways and look to the sole source of true glory. And that is Jesus himself. He reveals the very glory of God to us. Secondly, he satisfies our longing for glory then by redefining our own misconceptions of glory. And again, think about this from the disciples' perspective. They've just seen something that is, by all accounts, totally crazy. Um, this is more than they can handle, more than they can process, such that, that they're scared, it says in verse 6, and they don't know what to say. And so what that means for Peter is he's going to say something, which is what he does every time you see him. He's constantly, he, he's the guy who has to say something. This is awkward, let's fill this awkward silence, I'll talk. I don't know what I'm going to say. And what he says is, Rabbi, uh, it's, it's good, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Kind of think, what, what's that about? And there's been all sorts of speculation as to what that means, but here's what I think it, what, it, that's happening. A likely reason is that those tents were the places where glory would dwell. The same Greek word for tent is the word for tabernacle. It's this place where glory dwells. And, and so it's likely the case that what Peter wants here, and what he's thinking is that Glory has arrived. Jesus is here. This glory is coming forth from him. Moses and Elijah are here. This is great. And now we can forget about all the stuff that we just read about at the end of uh, chapter 8, about the suffering, being rejected, dying, all that. We're here. Let's set up and let's stay here. That's what he wants. And the reason he wants that is because that fits his expectation as to who the Messiah should be. Nobody in the first century has a category for a Messiah who says something like Jesus does in chapter 8, verse 31. Nobody had a category for a crucified, beaten, defeated Messiah. There had been guys who came before and said they were the Messiah. And what happened to them is they got crucified and they got killed. And they didn't rise from the dead. That means failure in the eyes of the disciples. Peter is thinking, this is great. We're coming off all these miracles that Jesus has done. He's healed the paralytic. He's healed this woman who's bleeding. He's calmed the storm. He's produced all this bread and fish for the 5,000 and again for the 4,000. We're stepping into glory. This is great. What he wants is a Jesus that fits his preconceived notions as to who he should be. He's made the Messiah into the image of his liking. And as Anne Lamott has said before in a great, great quote, she says it's quoting her priest friend Tom. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And so before we, uh, we throw Peter under the bus, we see, yeah, we do the exact same thing. That we want a Jesus made in our image. And here's the shape I think this takes. 
We want a Jesus who does for us what we want. Uh, we want a Jesus who's going to fit really neatly into our preconceived notions of him that's not going to call us to do more than what we're comfortable doing. And so we can look at, and scoff at the health and wealth gospel as we should. We can look at Joel Osteen and say, that's ridiculous. Your best life now? But when in fact what we're doing is couching our own desires for our own comfort, our own happiness, our own ease, and maybe dressing it up in some more biblically and theologically appropriate language. What I don't want to hear is to deny myself to take up my cross and to follow Jesus on a path that inevitably and certainly leads to suffering. Don't do that. I don't want to do that. We make Jesus into our own image. And the response from this passage comes from the voice in the cloud, and it's this. Listen to him. Because when we begin making Jesus in our own image, we get into real hot water real fast. And the main reason for that is that that is not the Jesus of the Bible. And in terms of our conversation here, he is not then the Jesus who reveals the God of glory. Listen to him. Are you okay with Jesus doing something different in your life than what you had planned? This is the glory that Jesus gives to us. This is the way that he redefines glory for us. Thirdly, finally, Jesus satisfies our longing for glory by re-gifting his glory to us. Now, re-gifting usually is not maybe a favorable term in your book. It usually is reserved for the lame white elephant gifts that you get or the repeat gifts um, that you can smile and nod about and then give elsewhere at a later time. That's not what I want it to connote here for us. Um, this is the re-gifting of something incredible, something that we couldn't have by earning, something that we couldn't attain Something that comes only as a gift. And there are two things, two ways in which Jesus gives us glory according to this passage. The first is this. Jesus gives his glory in his sonship. Gives his glory in his sonship. Back to verse 7. God the Father speaks from the glory cloud and he says, this is my son. This is my son. But he doesn't just say, this is my son. It's not just that Jesus is the Son of God who is the Messiah, although that's some of what is being said here. He says that He is God's beloved Son. This Son is the object of His Father's affection, and He has been so for all eternity. He is the object of delight for His Father. He is engulfed in the love of God. And so, at Jesus' baptism, when he says something similar, this is my beloved son, he says, with whom I'm well pleased. My son makes me happy, and I love him. That is probably pretty easy for us all to, to say, yep, okay, that, that's, that's who Jesus is to God the Father. Let me up the stakes for you. What if I told you that if you this morning have put your faith in that son, that God could speak the very same words over you. You are my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. You are the object of my affection, my delight, and my desire. The one that I take pleasure in. I guess that's probably a bit of a harder pill to swallow. But listen to what Jesus says in John 17. 
This is where he's praying to God the Father in his high priestly prayer. And here's what he says to God. The glory that you have given me, Father to the Son, I have given to them. And at the end of his prayer, the love with which you have loved me, God. Father, you have loved me, I'm your Son. It is this same love that I'm praying now may be in them. You are the recipient of the very same love that Jesus has received. And what that means is that if you've put your faith in him, his glory, as odd as this sounds, is now your glory that you share in. God loves you with the very same love that he has for his son, and that's not a glory that you can attain It's not a glory that comes with fame and recognition. It's a glory that can only ever be received as a gift. And he offers that to you. And what you need to hear, what I need to hear, is that that is the glory that you and I long for. That's the only thing that's going to fill the void that we're trying to put food into, that we're looking at pornography to fill us for, that we're drinking too much. Because we're trying to fill this, vo- fill this void. The only thing that can ultimately do that is Jesus himself. And that's what he gives to us and offers to us. But there's a second aspect to this glory as well. Jesus gives his glory to sustain us in suffering. Look back at this final paragraph. When they're coming down the mountain, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. And he doesn't want his fame to spread and for people to misunderstand what he's about. But then so the disciples ask in verse 11 about Elijah. And as we've mentioned here, in their minds, when Elijah shows up, the, the, the day of the Lord has arrived. The overthrow of the Romans is going to come and glory is going to be ushered in. And so they're thinking, okay, uh, when is that going to happen? Elijah's shown up, when's the glory coming? And of course, the answer that Jesus gives is not the one that they're hoping for. Jesus says instead, yeah, Elijah has come. It's John the Baptist. And they killed him. And something even more striking to them. Not only did that happen to John the Baptist, that's going to happen to me, the Son of Man. I, the Son of Man, will be killed. And from this point on in Mark's gospel, this is a huge shift at the end of chapter 8. To this point, there's been all of this about who Jesus is, and Mark is establishing his identity. At this point, though, there's a shift, and the rest of this, this book is Jesus heading to Jerusalem. And this is actually the shift in our sermon series as well that will continue as we lead up to Good Friday and to the cross and to Jesus' suffering on that cross. This is what the rest of this book holds for us. But what does that have to do with glory? This. The fullness of Jesus' glory won't shine until he is hanging on the cross. What does true glory look like? True glory looks like Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for his people. Why is that so? Because in that moment, Jesus is showing the heart of God himself, the self-giving, sacrificial love that is at the heart of the Trinity, and it is put on display in that he would die and suffer for sinners. 
people who have despised him and hated him. And it is this suffering for the redemption of God's people that shows this glory like nothing else. Glory shines through in suffering. And there will come a day when he is raised from the grave, when glory is brought in and sickness and suffering and death is gone and our struggles with shame and guilt will be no more. But that is on the other side of a cruel, painful murder. It's on the other side of suffering. And in the same way that he's given us this glory of his sonship, he's also called us into this same glory that shines through in suffering. But what I want us to hear this morning is that it is actually the hope of this future glory that will sustain you in suffering. He's called them to something incredible at the end of chapter 8, but he's equipping them now to suffer. What does this look like? How, how, how does this play out for us? I want to answer that by telling you about a woman named Kara Tippetts. Some of you will know that name. She's a 38-year-old wife of a PCA church planner in Colorado. Um, she's dying of breast cancer right now. She was diagnosed six months into their having moved to the field in Colorado. And, and she's, she's done this incredible job. of. She, she has this blog called Mundane Faithfulness where she writes beautifully and, I mean, incredibly difficultly about how the gospel and the glory of the gospel has sustained her through this. They've got four young kids. They're in the middle of trying to do ministry. She actually just wrote a book called The Hardest Peace. Um, she was actually interviewed in our denomination's magazine this month. Uh, and one of the things she mentions in there is that uh, she says that for her and her husband, some of the things that have changed is one of the biggest things is they've started looking to heaven in a different light. So they didn't really think much about heaven. And another way to say this, they didn't think much about glory before this. Here's the question from the interviewer and how she answered. When you think about heaven, what do you long for? Here's what she said. I think just to see Jesus, just to see him face to face, and to see in his face how he feels towards me. I know I'm a daughter cherished. I know I'm loved by God, but I wonder what it looks like in the face of Jesus. I know what my face looks like when I look at my children. But what does his face look like towards me? He doesn't have a record of my wrongs. He's not disappointed with me the way I get disappointed with myself and my feelings and my failings. This is her looking to glory to sustain her in the midst of terrible, terrible suffering. That is what glory does for us. Jesus re-gifts his glory to us. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, then this guarantees your future glory as well. The full experience of all of this blessing, of a world that is free of sickness, sorrow, and death. Of a world that, that experiences the full satisfaction of, of that void that we're trying to fill with all of these other things. And the way that you can be certain of that, especially if you're here this morning suffering through something significant, is to look to the cross where that glory is revealed. And know that as certain as Jesus died on that cross, so, you, so is the certainty of you being with him in glory. That is your future one of death initially, but one of full and final resurrection in the end. And that is the hope of glory that sustains us. And so, question for you to take as we close. 
Where are you seeking glory? Is it in Jesus or is it in somewhere else? That's the question that he puts to you, and it's the question that I will leave you with this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glory of this passage and the glory that you revealed to us. Thank you for the way that you satisfy us in Jesus in ways that nothing else can. And thank you for your love, your patience with us, uh, even in the ways that we look elsewhere for that glory. Draw us to yourself and satisfy us this morning, we pray. Amen.